Hi, I'm Pastor Michael. We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. And today we're going to look at the triumphal entry, which um, is uh, covered in all four of the Gospels. It's one of the key moments. It's one of the turning points in the life of Jesus. Because it's the first time when Jesus is publicly, publicly declared to be the king, to be the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. And the people respond properly with this explosion of praise and jubilation. But I also want you to see that in the midst of that, there's a discordant note. There's something off. Something is not right. And in that tension, I believe, is the meaning of the story. So with that in mind, turn to page 4 in your bulletin. We're going to read John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The text says, the next day, so this is the next day after the meal at Bethany, which we looked at last week, right? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued. The the verb tense there, there means not only did they do this once, but they did this continually, over and over. They continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of God. So I have two points. Here's the outline. First, we're going to look at the return of the king of Israel. And then secondly, we're going to look at how the disciples did not understand so we're going to look at first at the celebration, and then we're going to look at the discordant note, okay? So first, the celebration, the return of the king of Israel. If you look at verse 12, the text says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So first, what feast is this? This is the Passover feast. This is an important historical backdrop to our story. Because you have to understand that Passover is basically the Jewish version of Independence Day. It's the Jewish 4th of July. Because Passover commemorates the liberation of the Jewish people from out of tyranny in Egypt. Egypt being the global superpower of its day. 
And so it's celebrating the freedom of the Jewish people. This was the single most important event in the life of a pious Jew. And as a result, uh, historians estimate something like one million Jewish pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world, because remember, this is, there's, there was a Jewish diaspora, one million pilgrims would come pouring into Jerusalem during Passover week. Jerusalem, the normal population, was around thirty to 40,000. So the city would swell to about 30 times its normal size during Passover, right? The city is just packed to the gills. And as these pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem, of course they would have noted that Jerusalem is occupied by Rome, the global superpower of its day. And the Jewish people are not free. And so you could see how this could be a problem. Now, the Romans weren't stupid. They understood the potent symbolism of Passover. And so what they did is they would um, move, they would dispatch multiple thousands of legionnaires, soldiers, from Caesarea. Caesarea was the seat of Roman power. It was a coastal city with direct access to Rome. And they would march thousands of legionnaires into Jerusalem, and they would garrison them at this, in this massive Roman fortress. It was called the Antonia Fortress. It was uh, actually adjacent to the temple complex in a very provocative position. And so you have to understand that during Passover week, the city was under military lockdown. Roman soldiers were patrolling the streets, and then you have this hyper-dense throng of Jewish pilgrims. These are devout, patriotic Jews, right, because of the enormous expense of making this pilgrimage. And so you can see how this was a volatile mix. And so the atmosphere was crackling with tension. The city was set to explode. And very often, violent riots would break out. The most, the most notorious, uh, the most successful, depending on how you look at it, happened in AD 66. In AD 66, there was a minor provocation during, uh, during Passover. A massive riot broke out. They massacred all of the Roman soldiers and it began a four-year armed insurrection, which only ended when Titus, with his uh, legions, put Jerusalem under siege, destroyed the city in AD 70, including the temple. So that's the historical backdrop. So in this story, the Passover crowds, okay, they, hear, they began to hear these reports about a Galilean prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. And they specifically hear about his spectacular miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead after four days in the grave. And then what happens if you read verses 17 and 18 is actually there were two crowds. You'll notice there were two crowds. The first crowd was the crowd accompanying uh, Jesus coming from Bethany. Bethany is where Lazarus lives. And along with this crowd, no doubt, were multiple followers of Jesus from Galilee. And so this Bethany crowd, they were going around Jerusalem and they were telling everybody about the power of Jesus to raise the dead. 
And then a second crowd, this larger crowd of uh, pilgrims in Jerusalem, they're listening to this, right? They're hearing the reports of this, some of them for the very first time, right? Because they live throughout the Mediterranean world. And they conclude, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. Now, who is the Messiah? Huge topic. <laughs> Multiple layers to this. But let me try to distill it down to the bare essentials you need to understand. The Messiah is the heir of David. Remember, David is the greatest king Israel has ever had. And so the Messiah is this heroic warrior king who, will, who like David, will go out and fight for his people. And just as David had vanquished the Philistines, so the Messiah will vanquish the enemies of God's people. And then under the reign of the Messiah, at last, at last, there will be peace and prosperity and justice, just as in the best days of David and Solomon. But the Bible goes further than this, because the Bible says that the Messiah will be even greater than David. You have, for example, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 written by King David. And this is what it says. The Lord, speaking of God, said to my Lord, he's talking about the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the Messiah, David says, will be David's Lord. He'll be David's son, and yet somehow, David's Lord. Or, for example, consider Second Samuel chapter 7. Very important passage. The prophet Nathan comes to David, and he says, your son, right, the Messiah, he will have an everlasting kingdom. It'll be everlasting. It'll be unlike any other earthly kingdom that has ever existed. It will never come to an end. It will never fade, never diminish. And then you have passages like Psalm 72, which we looked at in the call to worship. Psalm 72 says that the Messiah, the Messiah's dominion will reach the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. What does that mean? The people thought, okay, this must mean the Messiah is going to be a Jewish Alexander the Great. He's going to be the Jewish version of Julius Caesar, this unstoppable world conqueror who will command an invincible army. And so this is the portrait of the Messiah that was on the minds of the people, and that's the historical backdrop. Now, let's go into our story. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, the Gospel writer John is giving us these details, and every detail here is reverberating. It's resonating with this rich tapestry of Old Testament prophecies. And what John shows us is that the people, the pilgrims in Jerusalem, they respond to this with this explosion of praise. There's this outpouring of exuberance and joy. And it's really hard for us as modern-day Americans to understand this because we live in the global superpower of our day. And we live in one of the richest cities in that global superpower. We live in incredible comfort and security and wealth. But you have to understand that this was not so in first century Palestine. 
the Jewish people were an oppressed people. And for centuries, they were under the thumb of various foreign powers, the Babylonians, um, the uh, Persians, the Greeks, the Hasmoneans, the Romans, the Romans being the global superpower of their day. And so the Jewish people were, have been suffering for centuries humiliation, poverty, injustice as a conquered people, as an occupied people. And so they have been waiting for the son of David, the rightful king of Israel, as God has promised in the scriptures, to at last return to Jerusalem. And the gospel writer John is inviting us as the readers to come into this scene and to join in this celebration. And so let me just walk you through some of the details here. First of all, look at verse 13. It says that the people took up branches of palm trees and then they start waving them. This had deep symbolic meaning. And you have to understand when you look at the Old Testament, there were all of these prophecies that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be this incredible celebration and that this celebration would go beyond even human lips. Do you remember in the Gospel of John, in the, tri- uh, in the Gospel of Luke, I'm sorry, in the passage of the triumphal entry, the religious leaders are complaining, right? They're, they're, they're objecting to all of this um, effusive praise And Jesus responds, if the people remain silent, then even the rocks will cry out. And so, when the Messiah comes, according to the scriptures, even nature itself will awaken and pour forth praise. So, for example, Isaiah 52, I'm sorry, 55, verse 12. Listen to this. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Or listen to Psalm 96, verse 12. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And so these passages are telling us that when the Messiah comes, even the trees will come alive. Even the trees will somehow dance and sing, and clap their hands. And so what happens in our scene is that the crowds, they cut down palm branches, right? There were palm trees all around that region. They cut down palm trees, and they're waving it. And do you know what they're doing? They're reenacting this prophecy. And we know that because it happened 200 years before. 200 years previously, Judas Maccabee briefly threw off the Seleucid Empire, and Jerusalem was independent for a brief moment in time. And when Judas Maccabee comes into Jerusalem, the people cut down palm branches and they start waving it in reenactment of this prophecy. But it was only for a brief time because Judas Maccabee was not the Messiah. And then look at the the next thing. Um, Continuing in verse 13, the people cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quotation of Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Psalm 118. It's a very important psalm. It's about the coming of the Messiah. And it envisions the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. 
And in this um, prophecy and imagery, the Messiah starts to sing. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, he starts singing to the gates. And in verse 19, he, says, he sings, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. And he starts to give praise to the Lord. He goes on and on, several verses of this. And then in verse 25, the people in Jerusalem, they respond by singing back to the Messiah. And they sing in verse 25, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us is the Hebrew word Hosanna. And so they say Hosanna. And then in verse 26, they say, Blessed is he, that's the Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Psalm 118 is imagining this back-and-forth dialogue between the Messiah and the people of Jerusalem, and it's this prophecy of the moment when the Messiah returns. Now, what is really fascinating, I think, is that Psalm 118 is part of what was known as the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. The Hallel Psalms were Psalms 113 through 118, and according to tradition, they were sung by the pilgrims as they were walking up into Jerusalem for Passover. And this was a tradition that went on for centuries. And so you have generation after generation of pilgrims, and they're singing the Hallel Psalms, and they're singing Psalm 118, And as they're entering into Jerusalem, what are they doing? They're thinking about this reenactment scene. They're thinking about the coming of the Messiah. And then in John chapter 12, the Jewish pilgrims, they take these incredibly pregnant, significant words from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, and they're singing it now to Jesus. And do you see what they're saying? They're saying, we've been singing this all of our lives, but the dress rehearsal is over because the reality is here. This is the moment we have been preparing for all of our lives. Notice they also add at the end of of the verse, even the king of Israel. The translation there is a little bit clunky. In the original Greek, there's no transition word. It just says, king of Israel. But every um, English translation adds in a transition because it's not really good English otherwise. Usually it's a greeting. They'll say, Hail, King of Israel, or Blessed is the King of Israel. The ESV, I think, chooses the most dubious option, even the King of Israel. But I want you to know that those words, King of Israel, is not in Psalm 118. The crowd adds those words. Do Do you see what they're doing? It's a very loaded title. They're proclaiming that Jesus, in an unmistakable way, he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And then finally, I think the most significant detail, Jesus rides into the city on a donkey. Now, first of all, you have to understand that no one would have been allowed to ride any kind of animal into Jerusalem during Passover. And the reason why is that it's a pilgrimage. And the posture of a pilgrim is one of humility. And so it's very disrespectful to come in, to ride into the city, you know, in sort of in a cavalier manner. And so Jesus would have been the only one in the crowd riding any kind of animal. He would have immediately stuck out in the crowd. But Jesus doesn't just ride any animal, he rides a very specific animal. 
John says it was a young donkey, the colt of a donkey. And this is echoing the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, which is printed for you in verse 15, which says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, why a donkey? Because if the Messiah is the Jewish Alexander the Great, shouldn't he ride a more impressive steed, like a war horse? I don't know if you guys remember in the news recently, but there were photos of Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un is the um, dictator of North Korea. And he was riding in the mountains on this magnificent white horse. And I guess it's sort of the, the PR campaign of his regime to show you his virile strength, his you know, macho presence, right? Remember also several years back, Vladimir Putin was also sitting on a horse bare-chested, right? So all these imageries, it's to show you this is a man you need to be intimidated by. This is a man that you need to fear. Imagine the North Korean regime um, issues PR photos of Kim Jong-un sitting on a donkey or Vladimir Putin sitting on a donkey. Why is the Messiah, who is greater than any king, sitting on a donkey? And the answer is that in that culture, a donkey was an animal of peace. And the fact that the Messiah is sitting on a donkey is showing you his gentleness and his meekness. Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says of the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not crush. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I want you to see just how remarkable the Old Testament vision of the Messiah is. Because it's this combination of strength and gentleness. Of the highest majesty. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And at the same time, the lowest humility. The Messiah, according to the Old Testament, is this mighty warrior of unflinching strength who will crush his enemies. Remember Psalm 110. It's very vivid. It says he will make his enemies his footstool. <laughs> he will, the Messiah will rest his feet on his enemies and say, ah. <laughs> it's very graphic. And yet, at the same time, the Messiah will be absolutely kind. He'll be absolutely loving and compassionate and tender. I want you to know that this is the ideal king. This is the king that our hearts are longing for. This is the king that we were created for. A king who perfectly combines seemingly opposite traits, majesty and humility, power and gentleness. And this passage is telling us he has come. At last, he's here. So that leads us to our second point. I believe the key to understanding the triumphal entry is verse 16, which is the middle paragraph. Let me read it for you. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this theme, the disciples did not understand, they were puzzled, they were flummoxed. This is a major theme throughout the Gospels. You have dozens of references to this. 
Jesus will teach a parable. He will give a difficult teaching. He will say something that contradicts their expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. And then the disciples will become confused. They'll get, they'll get upset. Sometimes they'll ask Jesus about it. Most often, they'll be afraid. They'll stay silent. And it happens again in verse 16. Now, what is it the disciples don't understand? It can't be what the crowd seems to already know, that that Jesus is the Messiah, that his entrance into Jerusalem confirms that identity. Because, after all, this is what the disciples wanted from Jesus all along. Do you remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 37, James and John, the sons of thunder, right, the sons of Zebedee, they go to Jesus and they ask, can we sit at your right hand and at your left? And when the other disciples find out, they become indignant, they become very upset, not because the request was improper, because that's what they wanted, right? They're all jockeying for positions in the administration. Because remember, the Messiah is going to be a worldwide conqueror. So all the disciples are thinking, we're in on the ground floor. I'm going to become the governor of Persia or maybe Egypt. That's what they're thinking. So what is it? What was so befuddling about this moment? Here's the answer. You have to appreciate how strange this moment is. And you have to understand how uncharacteristic this was of Jesus. Because when you read throughout the Gospels, remember, Jesus has always been coy and shy about his messianic identity. He was always telling people not to talk about the miracles that they had just witnessed. Do you remember when he asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah sent by God. Jesus forbids them from telling anyone about that. And in John chapter 6, when the crowd, um, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the crowd tries to make him king, Jesus refuses and then he withdraws into the wilderness. So you have all of this secrecy and hiddenness about his messianic identity. And then you have this scene. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he comes in with a bang. (laughs) He doesn't slip in incognito. He doesn't avoid the crowds. He does it with all this fanfare. It's basically a ticker tape parade. Streamers are floating down. There's confetti in the streets, right? People are waving palm branches. And when the people cry out, O King of Israel, which, remember, is a messianic title, Jesus says, yes, you're addressing him. Not only does he accept it, I want you to know he orchestrates it. There's a little detail in verse 14. Look, It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. The other gospel accounts go into it in much greater detail, but basically, the disciples and Jesus go through elaborate efforts, elaborate planning to procure this donkey. Because there's this perception that Jesus sort of comes into Jerusalem, you know, he's minding his own business, and then suddenly the crowd just spontaneously declares him to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, oh, this is, this is too much. You shouldn't have, but okay, I'll, I'll, ride, I'll ride on this donkey. I'll come up here. 
and he's sort of bashful about it all. But no. I want you to know that Jesus absolutely arranges. He orchestrates. He plans the the triumphal entry. Now, again, this is what the disciples wanted all along. And they were probably saying, finally! (laughs) Because they know what Jesus is capable of. They've seen the miracles. He can still the storm. He can raise the dead. The Romans don't stand a chance. And so they're saying, finally, it's happening. It was a bit of a zigzag path, but we're here. That's all that matters. Now, here is the confusion. Because the disciples, they're looking back at this event after the cross, after the resurrection. Verse 16 says, only when Jesus was glorified that they finally understood. What did they understand? That when Jesus openly declared himself as king, he was forcing the hands of his opponents so that there was no more ambiguity about his intentions, which means it was do or die. It was kill or be killed. So that when Jesus openly declared himself as king, that means either either he will crush his enemies, which are the Romans and the Sanhedrin, or he will be crushed by them. It's one or the other. Right? They, they can't both coexist. Once you declare yourself as king, it brings it to a crisis point. And you can see that in the reaction of the Pharisees. Look, look down at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You see, the Pharisees realized that their tactic of strategic patience is not working because here their worst fears are being realized. Jesus could very well have started a revolution right there and then. And so you see this rising panic among the religious leaders. And then this is when they decide. This is the moment. They have to take Jesus in Jerusalem. I want you to know they changed their plans. It's very interesting. If you look at Mark chapter 14, verse 2, This is before the triumphal entry. This is before, in fact, right before the anointing at Bethany. The plan was to arrest Jesus, right? The Sanhedrin decided they have to arrest and kill him. But verse 2 says, not during Passover or the people may riot. That was the original plan. They're worried about the people. Why? Because you have to remember the Sanhedrin is a puppet government of the Roman Empire. And their their standing with the people is not really solid, right? Their legitimacy is very tenuous. So they, they can't just take Jesus when he's surrounded by these crowds. They're essentially protecting him. So they decide they're going to wait until after Passover when the crowds have dispersed. But then a huge wrench gets thrown into their plans because the triumphal entry happens and they realize they have to take Jesus now. They can't wait until after. There may not be an after. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, this is after the triumphal entry, they decide to arrest Jesus in Jerusalem during Passover, which is a very risky plan. It's very dicey because they still have the problem of the crowds. And so they're going to need help. 
And so they're going to need someone on Jesus' inner circle to betray him, to give him up. That's Judas. This is when Judas becomes the key, the linchpin to their plans. Because they need Judas to tell them when Jesus is going to be alone without the crowds. And so the triumphal entry accelerates. It moves forward their plans, the timeline of Jesus' death. But here's the point. It didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way because here's the thing. Why didn't Jesus galvanize on this moment? Here are the crowds. They're ready to crown him. Why not seize this moment? Why not tell the crowds, I'm the Messiah, yes. You see those gentlemen looking at me with malice? Seize them. They are my enemies. Instead, nothing happens. It's a big letdown. Jesus takes no further actions after this. And in fact, for the next five days in Jerusalem, he does what he normally does. He goes to the temple courts, he teaches, he tells parables. And you could imagine the disciples, how deeply frustrated they are at their master. What are you doing? Don't you know they're gunning for you? And they're afraid. And it is only after the cross and after the resurrection they understand that Jesus came as the Messiah not to crush his enemies, but to be crushed. Not to be received by the people, but to be rejected by the people. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And then they finally understood what all of those Old Testament passages were about. Because if you read Psalm 118, remember Psalm 118 is about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, and it's um, imagining, it's giving you this script of this back-and-forth dialogue between the Messiah and the people of Jerusalem. And it starts out with the Messiah saying, Open to me, ye gates of righteousness. And he's singing praises. And in the middle of his song, just a few verses down, verse 22, do you know what he sings? He says, The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22, is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. It is, it is cited six times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospels, twice in the Epistles, once in the book of Acts. And it's about this rejected stone and it's the story of the, of the uh, building of the temple. And what happens is the temple builders, they find this stone, they inspect it, they examine it, they find it wanting, it's inadequate, so they reject it. They say it's unworthy of the temple. And then later, that stone becomes the cornerstone, the most important stone, the foundational stone of the entire structure. And the Messiah is saying, that stone is me. So think about this. Psalm 118 is very strange. It's a coronation psalm, and the Messiah is, is riding into Jerusalem, and he's singing. What is he singing about? He's singing about his rejection. Or if you look at the prophecy in Zechariah, Zechariah says the king will come riding on a colt of a donkey, 
And then if you read on in that same prophecy, it says the Messiah will be rejected as a shepherd of his people. Do you see a theme? Do you see a pattern here? Jesus is the Messiah, but as the Messiah, he has come to be rejected. And it is through his rejection that he achieves the victory spoken of in Scripture. So that he has come not to destroy the Romans, who are just proxies of the real thing. He has come to destroy the real evil power behind the Romans, which is sin and death. And he defeats sin and death, paradoxically, by dying on a Roman cross. Something that the disciples could have never conceived of in a a million years. He defeats sin and death through rejection. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says of the Messiah, He was despised and rejected by men. Mark 8.31, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. This is the gospel. The gospel is that his rejection is our acceptance. The gospel is that his death and shame is our eternal life and glorification. That's what the triumphal entry is ultimately about. And when you read the triumphal entry in that way, you realize the whole story just flows. You know, a lot of people notice there's a kind of strange, abrupt change in tone. Remember last week, we looked at the meal in Bethany, and the whole meal had a somber tone to it, right? Mary is pouring out perfume, and uh, Jesus says, this is for my burial. And so it has this very dark tone to it. They're talking about Jesus' death. And then in the very next verse, in fact, it says the very next day, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it's party time, right? confetti celebration and they're like whoa what's this weird schizophrenic change in tone but i want you to see it's the same tone as jesus is entering into jerusalem do you know what he's saying he's saying this is my hour do you remember all throughout the gospels he keeps saying my hour has not yet come my hour has not yet come and only in jerusalem does he say this is my hour Because he knows in five short days, the Passover crowds in Jerusalem, do you know what they're going to be saying? They're going to be saying, crucify him. Crucify him. And then do you know what they say? They say, we have no king but Caesar. That's what they say. So that's the gospel. Let me draw two quick applications and then we're done. Number one. I want you to see, first of all, how dumb and clueless the disciples are. They don't understand Jesus. They don't support or help him in any way. If anything, they're a hindrance to Jesus. And I want you to see how encouraging that is for all of us. Because when you see the spiritual blindness of the disciples, do you know what that shows us? It shows us the grace of God. It shows us the one-sidedness of salvation that God saves us even when we don't ask for it, even when we don't understand it, and even when we don't appreciate it when we receive it. You know why? Because it's by grace. God saves us by grace. Second uh, application. I want you to see that Christianity will always be a despised religion because Jesus is a despised Savior. 
The gospel does not make sense to the natural mind. It always seems foolish, ridiculous, even wicked. And if you can come to grips with that, it will help you a great deal. Because that means we should expect some misunderstanding, even mistreatment from an unbelieving world. And then if you can come to terms with that, that will help you to be faithful to Christ. I think a big part of why so many of us are shy about sharing our faith You know, I've spoken to so many of you, and for a lot of Christians, this is a big struggle in our lives. And I want to say, I think part of the reason is that we don't want to experience rejection. We don't want people to laugh at us. But you can't have it both ways. If Jesus was mocked, if he was rejected and despised, then how can you follow him and escape the scorn of the world? How can you avoid the reproach of Christ? Paul in Romans 1.16 says this, listen to this, for I am not ashamed. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you know why Paul writes that? Because in the ancient world, the gospel of a crucified Savior a crucified king, a crucified Messiah was deeply shameful. It was an object of mockery and scorn. People laughed at that message. And so Paul affirms, I am not ashamed of Christ crucified. And then I want to close with this. Jesus says in Luke 9.26, it's a little bit hard-heading, but listen. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. You cannot have it both ways. Will you stand with him? Will you suffer rejection with him and for him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, When we look at this story, we recognize that you are the king our hearts have been waiting for. You are awesome in power. You are completely gentle. And at the same time in the story, we see you marching steadily, steadfastly to the cross to bear our reproach, to bear our shame. In response, give us now courage to bear with you the shame of the gospel. Give us open doors. Let us see the amazing opportunities that have been there all along to share Christ to a dying world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.